0: A deep-dose psychedelic trip on hallucinogenic mushrooms isn't always a joyride. In fact, research shows that one in three people will return from a trip like this to say that the experience was pretty grueling, even though most of them will also report that it was one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives. In spite of this practice being driven underground through half a century of prohibition, there is nevertheless a strong subculture of people out there, who offer these journeys to people wanting personal growth and psychological healing. In South Africa, the underground psilocybin community is relatively new, and from the outside might look more like a religious group than a collective of therapists. These journey guides work by a set of principles for how to facilitate journeys, which, for the most part, try to manage the risks that come with deep-dose sessions. They draw on tried-and-tested shamanic traditions and some good old-fashioned common sense. But a whole lot of New Age gimmickry has crept in too, which is a bit off-putting for those wanting a more secular or medical approach. If we want to mainstream psilocybin-assisted therapy into day-to-day medical practice in traumatised post-apartheid South Africa, the medical community will need to draw on the accumulated knowledge of the underground community – which is still unregulated, self-taught, and largely answerable only to itself. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic therapy as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, you can do so via the website psychonauts.co.za or catch up through iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. The names and details of some of the people who appear in the series have been changed to protect their privacy. My name is Leonie Gibert and this is episode 8, Going Gonzo. Gonzo. The term refers to the unique style of rogue journalism that comes from Hunter S. Thompson's bizarre fact-meets-fiction reporting. It was distinctly subjective, written in the first person, and had a fuck-the-establishment tone that may or may not have had something to do with the vast amounts of substances that he threw down his neck on that fateful road trip to Vegas back in 1971. He saw bats, remember? Dive-bombing the car in the middle of the day. That was also the year that psychedelics were banned internationally when the United Nations drew up its Convention on Psychotropic Substances, effectively bringing to an end four decades of extensive medical research into the potential of psychedelics to treat depression, end-of-life anxiety, and addiction. It was also the year before I was born. I guess you could say that this podcast has gone a bit gonzo, It's not that I'm trespassing into the realm of fiction in these stories, not at all, but the podcast is entirely independent. I'm not working inside a mainstream newsroom or publishing house the way I normally do. This means that I don't have the colleagues and editors around me who would otherwise put all the usual editorial checks and balances in place that keep a writer transparent and accountable. The Psychonauts podcast is self-funded. It is occasionally subjective and first-person. It is unapologetically a piece of activism. It has an agenda. To start a conversation amongst South Africans about the potential for psilocybin-assisted therapy to be mainstreamed into medical practice here. That means lobbying for legislative change so that the substance is either decriminalised or legalised and so that experienced medical people can draw up regulations for how to integrate this therapy into day-to-day practice. But just because the podcast has an agenda, doesn't mean that I should abandon some of the principles that are the bedrock of responsible reporting. I started working on this project a few years ago, after I heard about a woman in her early 70s, someone I knew in overlapping writing circles, who had been arrested for allegedly having a fair whack of dried magic mushrooms in her home. She was supposedly using these to give people supervised mushroom journeys in her home. I thought the story would be a single feature article for a local newspaper about a quirky subculture of hippies and self-styled healers who use these old-world shamanic traditions in the white picket fence suburbia of Greater Cape Town. I quickly realised, though, that the story was much bigger than that, because there's a large and growing body of research from the medical community abroad that's showing the remarkable potential of psychedelics like psilocybin as a treatment for a whole host of trauma-related mood disorders and addictions. But I also realised that the story was too radioactive for most publishers in this country. Few wanted to touch it. I realised that if I waited for an editorial boss to agree to run the story, it wouldn't happen. I figured I needed to get cracking on the story regardless. Besides, it was time for a bit of a sabbatical from my usual writing beat. So I launched into The Psychonauts, a brash attempt at amateur broadcasting that has allowed me to cover the story as a serialised audiobook. This means the stories get out there, to you, without having to wait for the editorial nod from the mainstream press and it's free. It's been 18 months since I started working on this. Since then, it's been a thrilling journey down a rabbit hole into an underground community that offers these guided experiences to people who want to find some sort of spiritual growth or psychological healing through supervised psilocybin sessions. I've tried to weave together some of the personal stories that I've encountered in this community, with the peer-reviewed science coming from abroad, which explains how the substance works on our brains and psyches, and how it can translate into a legitimate medical treatment here in South Africa. As I said, the storytelling in this podcast is unapologetic. It's about advocating for a cause, because the substance really does have potential to heal. In a country where three out of four people who need mental health support from the state aren't able to get it, psilocybin could be part of the solution to the mental health gap. Psilocybin is a real game-changer in terms of being an affordable medicine, not just for the treatment of sick people, but for the betterment of healthy people too. And with the right training and regulation, it can be rolled out safely, responsibly, cheaply and widely. Psychedelics already have five decades of bad press to deal with, though. If we're going to change cultural attitudes and have the substances mainstreamed here, they don't need more smearing by the press. There's a lot of hard work ahead of us if we want to overcome the stigma that's keeping our policy makers and medical community from looking at the serious body of scientific research that's been stopped owing to ideological agendas for half a century. The problem with psychedelics being prohibited substances is that it's pushed their use into this underground community where people choose civil disobedience because they believe in the healing power of these substances. This means that the underground community can't work alongside medical people to conduct the practice in a transparent and openly accountable way, and it results in many in the medical community not trusting what, to them, might appear to be a shadowy and opaque counterculture. This underground community is a small word-of-mouth collective, where most people are on first name terms with one another. Since I started working on the podcast, I've spent a lot of time in these circles. I've been welcomed in as an ally, and even a friend. This is why this episode is a bit hard to write, because in spite of the fact that we share a common cause, the decriminalisation and wide rollout of psilocybin as medicine, I nevertheless have a responsibility to be critical of some of the goings-on in this community. From a journalistic perspective, if I'm going to cover the story in the interest of informing the public mental health debate, I still have an obligation to also report on where the pitfalls and dangers lie in terms of how this quasi-therapy is being offered by the underground community. Some of the noted side effects of regular psychedelics use are the following. 1. A heightened religiosity, with an inclination to evangelise for the cause. Present company possibly included. 2. An inflated ego and superiority complex, owing to the belief that one has achieved a level of enlightenment. This is typical of people dabbling in the realm of spiritual and contemplative pursuits. Present company also included, most likely. 3. A serious case of anti-establishment thinking present company definitely included. There's a reason Nixon was afraid of the hippies and banned their consciousness-shifting substances at the end of the 1960s. These side effects can be good or bad, depending on how they express themselves, and they might explain something about why the underground community looks a bit like a law unto itself. This episode is called Going Gonzo, but not just because I might appear to have gone a bit rogue with this work but because the underground community has gone a bit anti-establishment too. As far as bad trips go, Matthews was off the charts. No, let me rephrase that. This wasn't just a difficult or challenging experience. It was as if he had an abnormal brain event. Matthew is a smart and self-aware man. He's dabbled in playful quantities of psychedelics before, but this was his first deep-dose psilocybin session. He's a lean, fit man, well over six foot tall, a mountaineer and a surfer. You wouldn't have thought that the six grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms that he took that night would have such a negative effect on him. During the journey itself, he didn't look as though he was in distress – Through the four or so hours, he didn't move around much. He wasn't fidgety or restless. He didn't moan or sob or call for help. But when everyone started to surface at the end of the journey, he rolled towards the person next to him, his eyes wide as a baby owl, and said something like, holy fuck, what just happened? Matthew is generally quite comfortable with words, although he still can't find the ones he needs to describe what happened in his psyche during that trip. But it was in the days that followed the journey that things got really weird. He seemed to struggle to form new memories. He'd call up a friend and explain how anxious and confused he'd been all day, and that he'd cancelled a workshop that he had planned for that week. And then five minutes later, he'd start at the top of the conversation again, cycling through the whole story, saying how anxious he was, how he'd cancelled his workshop, forgetting that he'd just said the same thing a few minutes earlier. He'd do the same thing three, four times in a conversation. His partner said it was like being with someone who had mild dementia. He couldn't quite remember who he was, what his life was about before the journey, what he did for a living what was this workshop supposed to be about anyway? He was just aware enough of his memory loss to know that something was missing, which spun him into anxiety and greater confusion. He saw two psychiatrists in the days that followed his journey, and he necked a decent amount of tranquilizers. It took about a week for his brain to get back on the rails again. Eighteen months later, he seems fine, but he was advised to stay well clear of psychedelics for a while, even in recreational amounts. A study by the Johns Hopkins psychedelics team documents that one in the three people who have these deep-dose psilocybin trips will have a difficult or challenging time There's a growing body of scientific literature that explains why this is, and how to manage therapeutic dosing sessions in order to mitigate any behavioural risks that might happen during these difficult experiences. This knowledge also explains why difficult psychedelic experiences are actually also where the therapeutic potential lies. I've heard many stories of people who've had difficult deep-dose psychedelic experiences, where some have even described these events as terrifying and destabilizing. But bizarrely, these are often also deeply meaningful experiences, and people often say that they're just somehow able to cope. Matthew's story was a bit different, though. He wasn't a one-in-three statistic. He was something else entirely, and the psychiatrists he saw afterwards couldn't quite put a finger on what might be happening inside his brain to explain his week-long temporary amnesia. In the underground community, there are some who are quick to say that there aren't any risks associated with taking psilocybin. I think this misrepresentation isn't a deliberate attempt to mislead, but rather a genuine overcorrection to try and counter the unfounded myths that have inflated the apparent risks of psychedelic substances and fueled so much of the moral panic surrounding them there's a substantial body of research to show that the risks associated with psilocybin are much smaller than those associated with widely used substances like alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, and cannabis. One day, I'm going to do an episode on sugar, and how that's a much more addictive and harmful substance than psilocybin mushrooms. However, whatever the reason for psilocybin proponents claiming that there aren't risks associated with magic mushroom use, It's nevertheless irresponsible to say so. When it comes to substance use, be it legal substances like alcohol or sugar, or illegal ones like heroin or psychedelics, the risks are usually measured in three ways. The potential for addiction, how toxic they are for the body, and the risks associated with behavior while intoxicated. When it comes to psychedelics, there's no evidence that they're addictive and there's little chance of them poisoning your body. The main risk is in freaking out during an experience, and causing harm to yourself or someone else through your behaviour. I cover most of this in episode 6, Bad Trips and Men. These behavioural risks associated with psychedelics use are small, they're easily managed, and they shouldn't be used as a reason to prevent psilocybin from being mainstreamed as a medicine. There are decades of experience from communities around the world, both in the underground and from mainstream medicine, which give guidelines for how to screen and supervise people who want to use these substances for self-growth or psychological healing. A lot of this medical knowledge predates the Prohibition era, and then there are decades of accumulated experience from the underground world since the 1971 UN Convention. All of this accumulated experience informs the need for why there should be a three-tiered approach to supporting people through this form of therapy. You need careful medical screening before the dosing session. You need experienced sober supervision through the dosing session in a safe and comfortable environment. And you need people on standby afterwards to help with integrating what the person has learned during the dosing session if they should need it. In an ideal world, we'd have medical or spiritual facilities that would offer all three of these tiers of support in one premises, with the appropriately trained and experienced people offering the support. But we don't yet. So in the meantime, some other system has to suffice, because people are seeking out this treatment anyway, regardless of the fact that their doctors can't actually help give it to them. At the moment, if you want a journey experience, you're not going to have a medical screening at the facility before you head into a dosing session. And this isn't the fault of the journey guides, it's the result of the substance being illegal. Not everyone is fit to try this therapy. You shouldn't do it if there's a risk of psychosis or schizophrenia. You shouldn't do it if you're in an emotionally fragile state, even if it's just temporary. You definitely shouldn't combine it with cannabis, because that's almost sure to trigger a really horrible experience the jury is out about whether this is safe for someone who's bipolar. I think there still needs to be a lot more research about which mood-stabilizing drugs you can stay on when doing a dosing session, or if it's safe to come off those meds for a few days before you go on a journey. Either way, these are all things that you should be screened for before a psilocybin journey, but the guides aren't able to offer you that kind of medical support. So it's over to you to find a medically trained person who understands this field, and is willing to screen you from a harm reduction perspective. But those medical people are rare as hen's teeth. As for the dosing session itself, even though these are usually safe enough to be done under the supervision of people who are experienced, but not necessarily medically trained, there should be a medical person on standby in case someone gets into difficulty. Some of the journey facilities have volunteers who are skilled in the supervision process, and also happen to be medically trained, and so they can be on standby if there's a need for medical support. But they do this at great risk to themselves. Not only are they party to criminal activity, but they're also at risk of losing their license to practice medicine if they're caught. Finally, there really should be time, after the journey, for people to stabilise fully, to return to reality, to sober up, and then be able to work through what they experienced in the dosing session. Many people are able to do this integration work on their own. Some might need a soundboard of a group or a confidant, but some might actually need a trained counsellor to help them make sense of things. Given the current structure of these journeys, most don't have this kind of support on hand. There are cases, like Matthew's, where the person shouldn't just be packed off home without support. The ceremonial gatherings here in South Africa have a distinctly spiritual flavour. They are more like a church retreat than a visit to the doctor's rooms. These are carefully curated events, and the guides understand the need for experienced supervision. One of the more well-established groups usually works on a ratio of about one watcher or supervisor to every two participants. Given these watchers are mostly volunteers, you're talking about a lot of pro bono time. These retreats usually happen on a Friday or Saturday night, meaning the volunteers sit up most of the night to supervise the participants and then lose much of the rest of the weekend as they recover. These retreats have fairly strict protocols in place. You're asked to cut back on booze and cannabis for a few days before the journey and cut out red meat. The last meal should be at lunchtime on the day of the journey. You should think about your intention for the experience, but then suspend all expectations because, as they say, the mushrooms take you where they want you to go. Most people are invited to start with 5 grams of dried mushrooms, but the guides will talk you through the implications of slightly higher or lower doses. There is some self-correction in this community's practices. They've learned from bitter experience that cannabis doesn't mix with psilocybin. Neither does alcohol. One group generally won't allow anyone to take more than 8 grams of dried mushrooms in a sitting, because... As one guide told me, sometimes a participant will struggle to return to reality for a day or two after such a big dosing session. On the night of the journey, the main focus is on staying quiet, not disturbing others, and going as deep and internal as you can. Your senses are heightened during the experience, so any light, sound, smell, or touch is amplified. That's possibly why these journeys work best at night, after dark when there are fewer sensory distractions. The retreat guides and watchers are responsible for supplying the mushrooms, what some call the medicine or sacrament, which they mostly seem to get from reputable suppliers. They'll make sure people are safe and comfortable through the night, they'll have soup on the stove at 2am for the post-trip munchies, they'll be on standby with breakfast and a sympathetic ear the next morning, after most people have catnapped through the early hours. But the guidelines for holding these retreats and the people who draw these guidelines up aren't perfect. Things have gone wrong in the past and there are some questions about accountability. This is as much the result of the substances being illegal as it is a question of the shortcomings of just being human. The following are accounts of events that I've either seen firsthand or had reported to me by journey guides and participants who've witnessed the events themselves. Some of this behaviour may put people at risk medically, or it could be regarded as ethically questionable, or maybe even behaviour that's cavalier or irresponsible. One journey facility, which has an open-door policy during these events, has had two people escape the premises while in a state of extreme distress. Both occasions resulted in people wandering the streets of the suburb in the early hours of the morning, confused and panicked. Fortunately, neither came to any physical harm, but both occasions resulted in the police coming to the premises and arresting the journey guide. The fact that people were able to get away from their supervisors is something that's been raised by critics in the local underground community. Something similar happened at a psychedelic rehabilitation centre in Holland a few years ago, where a person asked to leave an Ibogaine facility where he was being treated for substance dependency. The facility owner apparently allowed him to leave, or took him back to his hotel. It's hard to get to the bottom of what actually happened. But this person was left unsupervised, and was able to walk out into the city, get onto a highway, and was killed by a truck. I'm struggling to find the latest updates of the case, but the facility owner was held criminally liable, and I believe is in jail as we speak. Fortunately, nothing like this has happened in South Africa yet. But it could, So to say that psilocybin treatment has no risks isn't an accurate representation of things. Given the criminal nature of psilocybin use, it's hard to expect medical people to make themselves available to supervise these underground retreats. But there are enough stories to indicate why it's necessary to have medical people on standby. There have been cases of people experiencing seizures during their dosing sessions. Cases of extreme distress. There's the story of Matthew. There are questions about whether epileptics should be allowed to do a session. Another case of a diabetic who needed his blood sugar monitored closely through the night, and where the watchers weren't able to follow the simplest instructions that had been given to them earlier in the evening. Stories of people who have emerged feeling extremely emotionally fragile, and yet were sent home unsupported. I've raised my concerns about this and sometimes received a rather cavalier response that suggests that the guides somehow trust the mushrooms to take care of things, as though they're externalizing their responsibility to some kind of other being. That might be fine if you're in a religious context and someone isn't medically at risk, but it's not adequate if someone could come to physical harm. I've also got some concerns about what happens in the hours after the journeys. This is a delicate time for people. They're raw and vulnerable. Most will have had radically mind-expanding experiences, whether easy or hard. They'll be punch-drunk from sleep deprivation, and more than likely still be a bit intoxicated on psilocybin, even if they seem to be sober. They're in a highly suggestible state. In my opinion, no one should be driving themselves home in the morning immediately after one of these sessions. And the more fragile souls need to have people on standby to support them if they need it. But this doesn't happen. People usually head off home in the mid-morning following a light breakfast and an unstructured debrief. Not everyone needs support after a journey. In fact, I think the statistics probably show that most people are better left to process their psychedelic learning on their own. But for those who need it, it does need to be on standby. Matthew didn't have any support at a time when he thought he was losing his mind. He was angry to the point of explosive for weeks after his experience. Now for the question of counselling protocols. Even though this is a quasi-therapeutic setting, guides and watchers should nevertheless stick to the basic codes of conduct that uphold people's confidentiality, privacy and dignity. These journey processes might result in informal counselling-type situations where guides and watchers might find themselves privy to extremely private and delicate information about participants. And the confidentiality of this material needs to be sacrosanct. I've seen people in the community delighting in juicy gossip involving information they could only have picked up in confidential counselling contexts. And I've seen it done in a way that glorifies and edifies the guide which for me just seems inappropriate. I've heard stories of guides taking advantage of the highly suggestible state that people are in in the post-journey afterglow to try and sign them up for extra counselling sessions or get them to agree to donate their time and their skills to further the guide's business ventures. I've seen a cavalier attitude from some guides after fragile journeyers have challenged them on the lack of integration support that they needed after the sessions. As I said earlier, a lot of the principles that these guides follow for their journeys are founded on tried and tested shamanic practices, some good old-fashioned common sense, and what people have learned along the way. But at the moment, the only real accountability is the kind of peer-to-peer reckoning that takes place inside the group. The unusual nature of the substance is that it does tend to lean people towards having a profound mystical experience even for the atheists. As with any spiritual group, there's a tendency to lionize its leaders. This isn't to say the leaders are seeking out this kind of treatment. They're not necessarily proclaiming themselves as gurus or spiritual leaders, but those surrounding them might nevertheless put them on a bit of a pedestal and not challenge them when the leaders make decisions that aren't necessarily responsible or in the interests of harm reduction. Because of the way the substance works on our brains, and how the subculture surrounding its use has evolved, there tends to be a strong metaphysical interpretation of psilocybin and how it works. For instance, I've often asked some of the more experienced groups how these journey guidelines were drawn up, and the answer I get most of the time is that, and I quote, the mushrooms told me. My interpretation of this, as a materialist and an atheist, is that these guides are drawing up the guidelines by bringing together their own intrinsic knowledge of the human condition, their own wisdom, and what they've learned after years of practicing with the substance. Psilocybin isn't necessarily speaking to them as they interpret, but rather it's just giving them heightened clarity of understanding, and joining the dots. But they nevertheless tend to explain this learning process by portraying the substance as if it's some kind of a being or entity that operates outside of ourselves, as though it's part of a universal consciousness that is an authority all of its own. How do you question this knowledge if you see it as coming from an authority that has an almost godlike persona, as if it's from a being that's bigger than ourselves? Think about how this will look to someone practicing mainstream medicine. For the underground guides to say that they drew up their guidelines for safe practice on the basis that the mushrooms told them how to do it. That's a bit like saying that God gave you the hygiene practices that you use in your hospital before scrubbing up ahead of surgery, and that you don't see a need to doubt this method at all. Just from a communications perspective, this is going to be challenging let alone earning the trust of the medical community in this regard. The more experienced journey guides in South Africa have been doing this work for close on a decade now. They tell me that they regard themselves as something of a university through which to train up people in how to become experienced watchers or supervisors. The idea is that the watchers will graduate through this informal training and then go on to replicate their practice in other groups, and slowly it will spread. At the moment, this is the most realistic model for addressing the main bottleneck in mainstreaming this medicine in South Africa. The bottleneck is the need for experienced service providers to support people through dosing sessions. The concerns I have, though, are threefold. Firstly, these groups are tiny and they don't have nearly the facilities or capacity to train people up at the rate we'd need it in order to bring this therapy into mainstream practice. To train up the numbers that we'd need to, some of the existing medical training facilities for doctors or therapists or nurses or social workers would need to come on board as well. These small groups operating in people's suburban homes are not nearly large enough to do this. Secondly, another limitation in terms of these groups being the epicentre of training is that they don't represent the full spectrum of South Africa's cultural or socio-economic context – Where this medicine is most needed. Barring a few followers of the Rastafarian faith who attend some of these journeys, most of the people involved in this community are middle class and self-identify with Western culture. Translating this therapy into the context where people are desperately poor and identify with a more traditional African culture will need some special finessing and I don't think that the local guides have thought this through. Finally, I do get the feeling that some of the locals regard themselves as being the final authority on the substance and how it works, and aren't necessarily willing to look to other experienced groups abroad who are drawing from psychedelic treatment protocols that predate the 1971 prohibition era. I'm not saying that we should always defer to the US or Europe as being the headwaters of all knowledge on this matter, but we can still look beyond our own borders to see where we can learn from others. I'll put a whole lot of links in the show notes that point to the codes of conduct and therapeutic protocols that come from some of these other experience groups. A group like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has been doing licensed psychedelics research in the United States for three decades now, and has clearly defined protocols for how to conduct this kind of therapy. Another valuable research is the Code of Ethics for Spiritual Guides, issued by the Council on Spiritual Practices. One of the points in this code is this, a reminder that people embarking on these quasi-spiritual and medical processes may be especially open to suggestion, manipulation and exploitation. Therefore, guides need to pledge to protect participants and not allow anyone to use a person's vulnerability in a way that could harm or exploit anyone, or in a way that furthers the guide's agenda or business. Our local guides don't need to defer to these developed world protocols as the final canon on such matters, but they should be willing to learn and incorporate from where others have gone before them. Sometimes, if you want to change the system, you have to go a bit gonzo. Depression can be a terminal illness, where the emotional pain is so bad that the disease ends in death for someone. Psilocybin and other psychedelics are showing themselves time and again to be a life-saving treatment, taking the edge off extreme depression and even arresting suicidality. And yet, if you're caught with hallucinogenic mushrooms on your person, you could end up with a hefty jail time. Barring a small handful of doctors and therapists that I've come across in the underground world in the past few months, The medical community is largely silent on this matter. They're not talking about this therapy. They're not challenging the illegality of psilocybin, and they're not trying to change drug policy or skill up practitioners so that they can offer this therapy in South Africa. The process to do this is not an onerous one, and it's one that I'll talk about in a future episode. It just takes political will, filling out a bit of paperwork for the medical regulator and then getting the training programs in place. And yet the medical community is not engaging on this matter in South Africa. I'd say in light of this, that until psilocybin is legal and available as a medicine here, there's a moral imperative towards civil disobedience. And that's precisely what's happening in the underground community, where people continue to flout the country's laws so that you and I can find this medicine for ourselves outside of the formal medical world. And they do so at great risk to themselves. A while ago, a respected environmental lawyer, whom I'm lucky enough to count as a friend, recently pointed out just how bizarre it is that some plants are legal and some are not. Plants and fungi have been around for hundreds of millions of years. In geological terms, Homo sapiens have been around for a wink of an eye, by comparison. We're the result of a line of primates that goes back about six million years, and in our modern form, we've only been around for about 200,000 years. How bizarre is it that a tiny number of those humans who've managed to work their way up through the ranks of our recent political system have been able to decide on behalf of nearly 8 billion people that some of these plants and fungi should be free to use, but others not. That some of these can be grown and processed and sold and taxed as part of the mainstream economy, but a few others will get you thrown in the slammer for 15 years. You and I grew up during the Prohibition era of psychedelics. Nixon had them banned after they burst into the unique political context of the 1960s and created a whole lot of anti-establishment thinkers that threatened his administration and his need for troops to slug it out in Vietnam. A very hot war in response to ideological differences between capitalism and communism. The full history of human beings' use of psychedelics as a tool for spiritual and medical use is much, much longer than this chapter. The story of psychedelics as a possible therapy for mental health treatment has broken wide open overseas. The genie is well and truly out of the bottle. The mainstream media are all over it in the United States and Europe. And the medical community is starting to engage publicly with the issue. Not so here in South Africa health journalists and the medical sector don't seem to want to touch the story with a barge pole. I hope that this podcast will help slowly change that. We need a level-headed, evidence-based conversation here that's free of moral panic and unsubstantiated myth about psilocybin and other psychedelics, and the potential as a method of healing in this country. Until the mainstream press and the medical sector get on board, there's plenty of scope to go a bit gonzo with the story. But going gonzo doesn't mean that we should be reckless or irresponsible. As a self-published project, I operate outside of the peer-to-peer accountability mechanisms that exist in an editorial newsroom. I'm trying to manage this risk by having regular conversations behind the scenes with colleagues, respected health and hard news journalists whose bylines some of you might even recognize, so I can check in with them from time to time. I want to make sure that I don't overstep journalistic ethics lines and I need to respect the privacy and trust of the people in the underground community who've allowed me such intimate access to the centre of their practices. I also have a responsibility to the public to report fairly and accurately about what's going on in the underground community, even if this is an unapologetic piece of activism. I mustn't give a message of false hope to people who are desperate for relief from emotional pain. And I can't let this podcast be co-opted by an underground community, even if we have a shared agenda. This episode hasn't involved my usual storytelling approach. It's been more technical and philosophical in nature, but it's an important one because it's about the need for balance. We need disruption in order to bring about social change, but we also need to be responsible to one another for how we bring about that disruption. This episode looks at the need for me to be accountable, in spite of this being a piece of activism. And it's about the underground community needing to be open to learn from others and also be accountable to people beyond just their inner circles. A future episode is going to take a look at the medical community and ask if it's in dereliction of duty by failing to apply its mind to this breakthrough medical technology in order to bring it to a country that has such a high rate of untreated trauma-related mental illness. It's not lost on me that the father of Gonzo, Hunter S. Thompson, died by his own hand. He was, by his son's account, not always the nicest of characters. He was a bully, violent with his words and threatened violence with his hands at times. He lived hard and pickled his body with just about every substance he could find, legal and illegal. But towards the end, a broken leg and failing health started to steal from him the things that kept his life rich. Things were becoming, well, boring, he said in his last note to Rolling Stone magazine. His death was violent, but not impulsive. It involved one of his own firearms. It may have been years in the making. Who killed Hunter S. Thompson, asks the UK newspaper The Independent. Nobody killed Hunter S. Thompson. Nobody but himself. Well, maybe. Maybe he did kill himself. Or maybe he died of despair and hopelessness and pain. According to the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, 23 South Africans die of depression every single day. Nearly 500 others come close to death in this way daily. How many of these deaths could be prevented with a medical treatment like psilocybin? Well, we don't know yet, because we can't implement the medicine, we can't roll it out, and we can't do any research to test its effectiveness in our unique post-apartheid context. Until the substance is legal and regulated, we can't do any scientific research. One day it probably will be legal for use here. When that happens, the medical community is going to have to sit down with the experienced underground guides and learn how to offer these supervised psilocybin sessions. But until then, those operating in the underground psilocybin community will carry on offering this rogue form of medicine. the obligatory disclaimer once again. The author, that's me, Leonie Gibert, and the partners in the Psychonauts, we aren't endorsing the therapeutic or recreational use of psychedelics. This podcast is founded on the principle of harm reduction. Word is spreading about the potential benefits of psychedelics, but because they're illegal, it's driven them underground, where it's hard to monitor and safely regulate their use. This podcast aims to open up that conversation as well as put some evidence-based ideas out there about the risks associated with the unsupported therapeutic or recreational use of such substances. The kind of psychedelic experiences discussed in this series should only be done under the supervision of a skilled professional and in a safe environment, and people with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia should steer well clear. Please speak with an informed family doctor or psychiatrist to find out more. Oh, and don't go out foraging for wild mushrooms. No matter how good you think you are at mushroom identification, it's hard to tell the lethal ones from the safe ones. As the old saying goes, all fungi are edible, but some only once.